0: All right, good to see you this morning. We've got a couple uh, slide announcements that we're gonna put up here in a second. And, uh, oh, there's a picture right there. I'm, I'll describe what this is, and then there's a short video from Pastor David Evanger. This is the, the uh, every other month, the North Seattle Churches, North Seattle United, does a, a prayer gathering, an intercessory gathering. And this is down at uh, Sedaris Church uh, just on Thursday night. And I think Pastor David has a message for us, right? Let's hear that. Hey, Epic Life, my name's Pastor Dave here at Sedaris Church down in Wallingford. We just got done with the intercessory prayer gathering here at our place, and it was amazing and wonderful, and I know uh, prayer gathering is coming to Epic Life next month, and so just want to encourage you to be a part of this. Tonight was an amazing ensemble of, of God's people from around the city that came together uh, to worship together, to pray together, and just to see the body of Christ all over this city united in one voice and one prayer through one spirit was, it was amazing. It was really, really good. So you don't want to miss that. And I really encourage you to be a part of that uh, next month at Epic Life. So God bless. We love you. We love being in this mission together in our city. Awesome, so Pastor David Evanger is a pastor at Sedaris Church down in Wallingford and uh, has been part of the North Seattle Pastors Group for several years now, and so such a blessing to minister with him, but all these pastors, if you don't know, the North Seattle churches actually do a lot together. We worship together, we pray together, we gather as pastors once a month uh, for a couple hours to encourage and, and help and walk with one another, and uh, we, uh, we also... Um, uh, just minister together in a lot of different ways. As churches, we we minister with uh, uh, with several of the local churches right here on Aurora Avenue as well, and like Seattle Foursquare, and down here at Mosaic, and Bethany, and others, and so it's such a blessing and uh, to be in this community, and so, um, so there are some prayer things coming up. If you don't know, there's some amazing prayer things coming up. Uh, March 22nd, pray for this, and or be part of it. March 22nd, right here in the morning, there's a King County prayer breakfast preview, all right? It's not the prayer breakfast, it's the preview. And so we're gonna gather and get ready for April 19th, which is two days after Easter as the King County prayer breakfast. And and typically, I've said this for a couple of weeks, but I'll, I'll tell you again, typically King County prayer breakfast on the 19th of April has been downtown in a hotel where about 200 people gather. Uh, and now it's gonna be, around the entire county in homes, your homes, our homes, as we invite our neighbors into our homes to pray. And so Christine and I are already preparing to invite our neighbors into our homes and uh, and enjoy a community of prayer. And we're just gonna invite them and say, hey, we're inviting you. There will be some dessert, but we will invite you to pray. And that's what we're doing as a neighborhood. And so King County Prayer, April 19th. If you wanna be part of the the preview of that and the preparation of that, the 22nd of March, and that's North Seattle, Shoreline and Lake Forest Park. And we're kind of, meeting here uh, to encourage the churches of this area to do that. All right, so um, there's a bunch of announcements. I want to encourage you to get there. Uh, Hello, everybody online. It's such a blessing to have you part of this community, and we really count you as part of this community as well. Um, If you are interested in being part of a discipleship group, we have smaller uh, D groups, discipleship groups, um, and and we, we ran them for a year kind of working through the Bible. Some of you are still going through the Bible. How many of you are still heading through the Bible? You haven't made it in the year. All right, that's okay. It takes a while, right? It's an epic story. So it should take some, some time. And uh, and so um, if if you have finished and you've gotten through the Bible and you want to spend some more time, there's a um, a, a uh, kind of a, I guess, a Bible study book, and it's called Knowing the Bible, and they're, they're thin uh, workbooks that go through every, every book of the Bible. And so if you go online, you look up this Knowing the Bible series. This is on Psalms, and uh, your D group can go through the Bible together. It's, it's a super a great 12-week study going through a different book. And so you can pick the book of the Bible if you want to pick Ezra and Nehemiah right now and, and see how I'm doing on Sunday morning. You could do that and, uh, and and just spend some time. But discipleship group is a small group of usually usually three to five. Sometimes if you're really popular, like Justin, it's 12 or 15. and uh, And so... <laughs> right? I mean, somebody has to have the big group, right? And so, but anyway, they're, they're just small groups that are studying the word together uh, every week or every other week. So please um, get on the church app, uh, Epic Life's church app, and sign up for that, or just talk to me afterwards. And so before we start, I do want to spend some time praying about the the issues in Ukraine. And so we know this, um, we're, we're looking at this from afar and I realize that and it's super hard for us to understand what's going on but how beautiful it is that we can pray. And so specifically this past week, I've been praying for our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine. Uh, for many years, I went to Romania and were part of a, a seminary there and ministered uh, in the seminary and into the Romanian countryside. And it was just after the fall of communism there, Ceausescu had just been put to death in, in 89, 90, somewhere in there. And we started going in about 91 and then 94 and on. Christine and I were there a couple times. And so a few times and, Um, we started praying for it and we started hearing what was coming out of of Russia. These are the the, the Communist Bloc countries were the countries where people were smuggling Bibles in because of the legal practices of Christianity. Uh, and so um, coming out of there, I was just wanted to read you a few things. These are from spiritual leaders inside of, of Ukraine. Uh, this is from uh, the Christian Scholar Leaders International as one, and they're, uh, this is um, Christian Christianity today asking them how we can pray for them. And so I'm going to read a little bit of this. These are real people on the ground, uh, leaders in the Christian um, uh, seminaries and churches around the country. Uh, He says, I'm praying for my wife and many other wives who have refused to be evacuated while their husbands stay behind. But I'm also praying that this war will shake the conscience of humanity and the theology of the church. No longer can we um, elevate a nationalism that so often requires others to be brought low as we see so many Christians adopting now in Russia as well. Here's another guy, this this guy, I'm not even going to try to pronounce these names, but this is Odessa, uh, Odessa Theological Seminary there in, the, in Ukraine. And he says, I am praying through the rage of an almost tangible pain. Instead of my seminary routine, I am an emergency volunteer. Our lives have been smashed, our souls have been burnt, and there is no end in sight. For the wholeness of our country to be restored, we need God to give spiritual insight and moral clarity to the world. Then this storm can turn against the aggressors and disperse them. Um, This is another one from uh, uh, the Legacy Institute in Ukraine, a Christian institute there. I'm praying for a clear leading from God if I should relocate my family outside of Ukraine. Our central region is safe right now, but things can change quickly. Eurasia and the Middle East are the epicenter of this battle right now. And so this is One Hope Church says this, I'm praying for the parents of my wife who are remain in Kiev and for wisdom that we know how to shepherd our five sons in this very challenging t- season. But beyond Russia, we pray that, that the lies and deception that categorizes so many issues Identities and histories will drive Christians to better discipleship in how to be the light. This is the Multiply um, network, Christian network in the Ukraine. I'm praying for my family to endure this hardship we are going through, but with wisdom to know how to best continue serving those around us. But we are also praying for miracles that as God meets the physical needs of people, we will also give peace He will also give peace to their soul, and through it all his name will be glorified. Uh, this is Mission Eurasia. I'm praying for strength and courage and leadership. I cannot be on the ground in Ukraine, but my staff and friends are, some of whom are driving food to the most dangerous areas in our center in Lutsk was just shelled last night. But more than just politics, this is a spiritual attack on the church. Within the church's very limited resources, I am praying that God will shower and show his power and make the gospel shine. And it goes on and on. Would you pray with me? <clears throat> Father God, we, we are here in humility before you. Um, humility because we really don't know what's going on. We, we know such small reports and small pieces of, of, of a, uh, a media that many of us don't even trust anymore. So we see these things, and we hear stories, and we see what's going on, and we hear reports from our brothers and sisters on the ground, and we just know we should be praying. And so we pray, Lord, for peace. We pray that you would dethrone the despots who are wanting just to overthrow I pray that you would do a work in their soul. I pray for uh, this man, Putin. I pray that you would miraculously put Christ followers around him, that his heart would be pricked and shame would arise and a guilt would come up into his nostrils and he would, his soul would be broken. He would see humanity and he, his soul would be broken. Lord, the, there's only one way that that can happen, and it is, is if you engage with him. So I pray that your spirit would do that. I pray that you would break the will of the aggressors and those on the ground who are even in their aggression are confused about what's going on because they haven't been told the true story. I pray for the Ukrainian people, the, the soldiers, the, the guerrilla warfare that's going on, the civilians, and everything in between, men, women, and children. Lord, there's so much that we have never experienced, probably all of us, maybe some of us have. We have never experienced this kind of aggression with bombs coming out of the air from nowhere, running and hiding as our houses and businesses and churches and hospitals are blown up. So I pray that you would teach us how to pray, how to come, how to intercede for these people. As we've learned in Ezra, we see Ezra interceding for the people. Lord, we, we see throughout the word that your, your people, your men and your women, come and intercede on behalf of others. And so we intercede on behalf of our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine. Churches and seminaries and hospitals and, and businesses and people who know you and people who don't know you, we intercede for them on their behalf. Lord, coming before you, asking that you would stop this if it is your will. I know through pain and sorrow, you bring beauty out of it. And so we just pray for your will to happen. We pray for protection against uh, for, the, for the innocent, Lord, protection. I just trust you and worship you. And Lord, as a, a church in North Seattle, we can do what we're called to do here, but I pray that our minds would be also remembering brothers and sisters around the world, around this country and around the world as we've seen just in the last couple of years even, the hurt and the pain. And Lord, we'd be able to decipher and look through the, um, the media coverage of things. We'd be able to understand, Lord, in wisdom. Help us to understand it's so hard right now. We just need your wisdom. And Lord, this morning, we need your wisdom as well. As we're gathered online and here in this space, we we need your wisdom to hear what you have to say to the church through Ezra, an Old Testament pastor. God, would you you guide us this morning? Would you speak? We trust you. Um, And Lord, I also know this morning there's people here who have uh, physical ailments. And I pray that this morning you would heal some physical ailments. I see them walking through the room and limping. I see the bandages. I see the, the backaches, the heartaches, the, the bruised souls, the bruised bodies. And I pray for healing on us this morning that we would reach out our hand and and uh, be willing to be healed. And Lord, I pray that in your miraculous doing that you would do that. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen. <clears throat> um. Well, this morning uh I, you know there's been been a a thing of a, a picture in my head all week long and I needed to share it with you. You know, I, I've, I come from a, a construction background. And, and for years in Minnesota, I had a, a construction company. And for years, I've kind of done a, um, a remodeling on the side and help people do stuff. And and I really learned to love to drive nails into wood when I was young out, on the, the mountain with my dad building things. Loved to take a hammer and drive a nail into the wood. In fact, when I was building pole barns in Minnesota, I really prided myself on a, on a six-and-a-half-inch nail on the top of a building with a 22-ounce um, hammer, one, two, all the way sunk. You know, I'm, I love driving nails into wood. And something amazing about nails into wood, if you nail them in and then pull them out, the, the hole remains in there. This is the picture I've had in my head all week long. The hole remains in there. And I've asked God, what is this? Why, why do I keep having this picture of this nail in wood and pulling it out and then the hole remaining? What is this? And he reminded me this morning as I walked into this building, as I looked at this wall. And you know this wall is made out of out of pallets. And part of the beauty of this wall are are nail holes. Nail holes that nails rusted in and they were pulled out so that we could we could create a piece of artwork. You know, God calls us his masterpiece in Ephesians. We're a masterpiece. Sometimes I think we think a masterpiece is somebody who is has a a perfection a perfectionist idea of a painting and every stroke they put onto a painting is masterful is perfect it's in the right spot but I got to understand that probably when people are painting that every stroke is not in the right spot but they take that wrong stroke and if you listen to Bob Ross there are no mistakes right <laughs> It's our painting. There's no mistakes. That could be a wisp of something else. And so I, I think that's probably what, what a painting, a masterpiece is. You, you take the wrong strokes, you take the bumps, you take the the, the goofs, the, the trips, the whatever it is, and you, you make them. Beautiful, and, and you take all of that, and in, inside of that is something of beauty. And I see this as something of beauty, that these nails have been pulled out. The pain of, of a nail being drive, driven into a board and then rusted and pulled out leaves something of beauty behind. And and so you look at pain and suffering in the world, and it's full of of this uh, these nails driven into wood. Look at somebody who you respect as an older man or woman. And you see the my my grandfather, um Tony Orup, uh 94 when he passed away. And the the summer uh just before he passed away, all of our family got to be there. And he was still, I think he was still driving by then. I'm not sure, but but the wrinkles and the the, I mean, the wrinkles, I just know where I'm going, I know where I'm heading, right? I mean, just the, the thick skin and the wrinkles and the, the, the worn body and the, the, the slight hunchness and the, the slight limp and the, the wearing of his skin, right? The wearing of himself. There's something there that is, that is incredible that you see that the, the beauty of who he is comes from, from good and bad. It comes from the nails in his wood, right, that have been pulled out. Beautiful. So, so I say that because I'm pretty sure it'll come into the sermon at some point. You know, <laughs> throughout, throughout this week, I, this, is, this has been a really hard sermon to write, honestly. And Christine will tell you, I've been wandering around the house trying to figure out how to write this. Uh, and and I find myself out digging in the soil, planting something, trying to figure out how to write this. I find myself drinking coffee uh, in meetings with some of you probably thinking over here about how am I going to write this and not engaging with you. This is a really difficult message this morning, and it's just, it's just hard. The fact is, is, what I've realized is the Bible just isn't simple, is it? It's just not this simple little homily that we get to get up and go, hey, here's, here's three points that's right there in the Bible. Everything's perfect, and I don't really got to say much this is not that. We're talking about Ezra. (laughs) We're talking about Old Testament pastor. Uh, We're talking about Old Testament things and problems and issues. And so this just isn't simple. There's nothing about it. And I realize also that in Epic Life, because we're a super wonderfully diverse community and family, that I'm, I'm speaking with people who have never read the book of Ezra and never read the preamble to the book of Ezra. And so I can't just start assuming you know, right? Because even some of us as Christ followers, pretty much all we know of the Bible are Sunday school answers. (laughs) And we build on our Sunday school answers, or we don't, and we get here as adults, and we read this, and we go, oh, that's in the Bible? (laughs) And this week, we're going to go, what, that's in the Bible? And it makes it difficult. And my encouragement to kids and youth especially is that you step away from Sunday school is perfect, it's really good for our kids, right? We need to have this time of of teaching for our kids to understand it. We don't really want to tell them the full story of, of David and Goliath and the, the the head thing, right? There's there's more to that. We we have to protect their innocent a little bit, but at some point we have to realize that David indeed chopped the head off the giant. We have to indeed realize that there's more to the story. And so this morning, there's more to the story. I'm just gonna read it. So This is going to be good. The Old Testament shows us the results of blessing and cursing, doesn't it? And so often we love the New Testament. We're New Testament believers. We love the New Testament. We love the Gospels. We love the parables. We love what Paul says. Well, some of it. We ignore it. But you know what? You know what the New Testament is full of? The New Testament is full of Jesus and the apostles and the letters quoting the Old Testament all the time. So it's really important for us not to throw away the Old Testament. It's really important. If, if Jesus was quoting the Old Testament, we probably should too, and we probably should learn something. So the Old Testament shows us the results of, of blessing, and it shows us the results of cursing, and then we discover that it's weaving this story of a messianic message that we're going to discover in Jesus. So when we get to Ezra, we are deep into the epic story of humanity, and it's a... It's a uh it's a deep story. You know, the Bible has a lot of blood in it. The Bible has a lot of God's people doing the wrong thing and being cursed in it. We have we have examples of God's men like David and Solomon sinning, like sinning like egregiously, and the story's still in here. And and many people would think and I would agree with them that if this is if this was a a fictional piece, the fictional piece would probably leave out the misgivings of the heroes. And so because this is real, the Bible characters and the writers wanted us to see the reality of what's happening in the Word. And so it's given us everything. It's given us all the misgivings, giving giving us all the improprieties of humanity and leaders and people throughout the Word. And now we're going to see this in Ezra, some of the things that have happened. So so I'm going to read this. In, in, uh, Chapter 9 here, and then give you some backstory, and then bring it into 9 and chapter 10. I'm not going to read all of chapter 9 and 10, but uh, we're going to try to try to make this work this morning. So, so God, um, we're humbled before you that you've given us your word, and I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would understand it well for our lives today. Thank you, Lord. Uh, verse 9, uh, chapter 9, verse 1, it says this, When these things had been done, well... We got to start. We got to stop already, right? When these things had been done, what what had been done? Well, if we go back a little bit, we know that Ezra has come from Babylon. The exiled people had been there seventy years. Uh, Fifty thousand of them came over with Zerubbabel, and they were released by the king because God worked and stirred the hearts of the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, King uh, Darius, King Cyrus. These kings, their their hearts were shifted. Like God shifts water, He shifts their heart to release the people to go back to the promised land to rebuild the temple, to be part of. And so earlier on, 70 years before this, about 100 years before this, uh, about 50,000 people left Babylon, came back to Jerusalem, started building the temple, got the temple built. There was a celebration. There were some good things that happened. And then Ezra shows up last week. You're going to have to Go back to last week to find out chapter 7, 6, and 7, and 8, when Ezra kind of shows up, this man uh, shows up. And he's kind of a pastor. He's described as a a scribe and a priest. So he's not just a priest. He's not just a scribe. A scribe is someone who looks at the law. And at that time, it was just the first five books. Looks at that, writes about it, talks about it, thinks about it, and teaches about it. And as a priest, he was also doing, it seems like, some priestly duties as well. And so so when it says, when these things had been done, uh, Ezra had arrived with 1,500 people, not a, a huge contingency of people, but about 1,500 people with a whole bunch of silver and gold from the Babylonians. And they came to to uh, kind of set up, and, and uh, Ezra came with the, the first five books. He came to teach the word of God to the people of God. He came to sit down and go, okay, you guys, there's been a division. Kind of the center of Judaism was in Babylon for a long time because the people were growing and and multiplying there. And, and there seems to be some synagogues. It might have been when the synagogue kind of world started. Uh, and there was no temple in Babylon, but they were teaching the the word. And so now Ezra is bringing the word to Jerusalem, where the center of Judaism would start again. And so. And so that's kind of where we're, we're coming from. The exiles came out of captivity and now they're sacrificing burnt offerings to God and Ezra shows up. And so when these things happen, back to verse one, when these things happened, when these things had been done, the Jewish leaders came to me. And so Ezra is talking first person here. And, uh, and this is really the, one of the first places we see the Bible writers talking in first person. And so this is a historical document and he's just writing about what's happening. They came to me and they said, many of the people of Israel and even some of the priests and the Levites have not kept themselves separate from other peoples living in the land. They have taken up the detestable practices of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For the men of Israel have married women from these people and have taken them as wives for their sons so the holy race has become polluted by these mixed marriages. And worse yet, the leaders and the officials have led the way in this outrage. And so I'm not going to read everything in between. We're going to jump right to chapter 10, verse 3. It says this, Let us now make a covenant with our God to divorce our pagan wives and to send them away with their children. We will follow the advice you, Ezra, you have given by the others who respect the commands of God. Let it be done according to the law of God. And we're going, wait a second. Wait, what just happened here? So you have a bunch of people. They married these wives and they fell in love with these wives from other tribes. They had children with them and they had families. And now they're coming around. They're going, you know what? We goofed. Uh, Let's just kind of flick away these these uh, relationships, these families. We're going to send away the women and the children, divorce them, and get rid of them. Whew. That's uh, brutal. I, I mean, wow. From this side of eternity, that seems pretty pretty hard. At an elementary glance, this seems like God is just plain cruel. What was so bad that they had to do this? and be this cruel. You know, Richard Dawkins, you guys know him, divorced three times and openly antagonistic to God and teaches and expounds on an unexplained evolutionary accident that developed into life. He says this. The God of the Old Testament seems like he was a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, genocidal, megalomaniac, sadomasochistic, and capriciously malevolent bully. Uh, I think he was searching the dictionary for as many pejoratives as he could find and he put them onto the God of the Old Testament. Well, he wouldn't be the first or the last who would understand God through the lens of historical miscalculations and misunderstanding and, and really sophomoric enlightenment it's it's a it's a childish way to look at God of the Old Testament in those lens because when you really understand the God of the Old Testament, that's not really how you see him. But when you read a verse and a passage and don't understand the rest of it, it kind of gives you this sense that, wow, God is a bully, He's a malevolent bully, right? And so we read this stuff and we we and it's so dangerous for us as Christians to sit and and go, "Wow, that's horrible, I'm not going to believe in God anymore." And there's, you know what, if that's our strategy, there's all kinds of places in the Bible that we can look to and decide not to believe in God anymore. In fact, there's some things in the New Testament as well that we scratch our head and wonder about and try to figure out. Many other people have just said, I just can't believe in a God who would do that. You can go down the list, that go onto the internet and you want to read some really sad things, you read about people who have decided to walk away from God because I can't follow a God who could do that. But we just sang songs about a merciful God, a loving God, a forever loving and merciful God and gracious God. And so we sing and we sing that and we we stick into this New Testament thing. and Oh, gracious God, look how he heals people and loves people and raises people up and cares for people. And then we turn to the Old Testament. Wow, I just want to strike that out. I just don't want to read that. But when you really look at this in a deep way and not some some... I'm sorry, middle schoolers, but some middle school way or, or, or let's, let's go fifth grade way, right? Not middle school way. But some, something, something of, of not even trying to understand as much, let's say, right? And we decide that we're just going to read passages and not really look at the whole. We have a problem. Well, so there's, there's several problems. You know, I, I mean, personally, myself, if I just read those passages and those are the only passages I knew about God of the Old Testament, I would go, count me out too. I'm bouncing. But then I've got to think. So number one, if he is God, and if there is a God, the fact is, is that in my calculations, is he can do whatever he will, he wants. <laughs> if he is God, and he is the creator God, who am I to say, this is how you should behave or shouldn't behave? I'm really nobody. I might have my preferences, but he gets to do what he wants. So number one. Number two, maybe we should look deeper and actually be honest in our own soul. Almost everyone who doesn't believe in God anymore cites a hurt that the people of God have perpetrated on them. We're often living out of this hurt instead of, and so we see the nail holes and we, we, we see the pain in our lives and we see what somebody else did in our lives and we see this stuff and, and we act out of hurt instead of out of understanding. And we take that hurt, and that hurt becomes us. Our identity is found in the hurt. Our identity is found in what that youth pastor did, what that pastor did, what that, that spiritual leader did. And that's where our, our hurt kind of swims in that, our identity swims in that. And we, we forget as Christ followers that our identity isn't in our hurt. Our identity is in, in his healing. And so, so, so we go and we, we offer our, our, our lives to God and he heals us. He brings us salvation and, and redemption through the blood of Jesus. Yet we, we love to come back into her and find that as our identity. And, and I think that that pulls us away from God more than it pushes us towards God. Understanding men and women just takes time. It takes time. It takes investigation. That's why we do discipleship groups. And if your discipleship group is about brats and beer, uh, the, actually, it's about discipling. It's about learning and understanding what the word of God says and who this God is. Perhaps none of us completely understands it. Some of us, like John has been a pastor for 50 years. Dave has been a pastor for 35-something years, and they continue to minister. And I get bet you both of them would say, you know what, I haven't got it figured out. I'm still figuring it out, Right? Okay, and so, man, I pray that I'm there someday. So it doesn't it, it gives us this it gives us a pause when we read this. We need to go a little deeper, take a, a, another step. Don't just read it and throw it away, but take another step. It doesn't fit into a a, a homily a Sunday morning that's short and brief because we want to get out of here and onto apple pie someplace. Ooh, apple pie. That sounds great. Joel chapter 2 says this. I think it's up here. Do we have Joel chapter 2? Because I'm going to flip. There it is. I got it. Joel chapter 2 verse 13. There it is. It says this. Don't tear your your clothing in your grief or um, don't tear your clothing in your grief. Hey, instead, actually tear your hearts instead. Return to the Lord your God for he's merciful and he's compassionate. He's slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. He's eager to relent and and not punish. So this is who the God of the Old Testament is from a prophet of the Old Testament. Listen, he is merciful and compassionate. Every time we look at a passage like this, we need to think to ourselves, God is merciful and compassionate. Whoa, it doesn't look like it. Okay, but he's also slow to get angry and he's slow to, Um, he's, He's slow to get angry, and he's filled with unfailing love. Ooh, it didn't look like it in that. He's also eager to relent and not punish. Interesting. So this is the lens, that lens, Joel 2.13 is the lens. We have to look at the entire Old Testament and the entire New Testament and everything in between and here and there. We have to look through those lenses. We have to put those lenses on and look at and understand the word of God, the God of creation, the God of the Old Testament is not what Richard Dawkins said in this shallow understanding as brilliant as he is, he goes to a shallow understanding of God, a simpleton's understanding of God. We have to look deeper and put the right lenses on to a God who wants to relent of punishment. So let's just look at history a little bit. From this side, it's always full of misunderstanding. Let's face it, it's very easy to make judgments from a distance. How many of us are guilty of that? We look in the past and we go, oh, I know what happened there. I'm going to make a judgment on that. Eh, Maybe, maybe not. It's easy for us to make judgments in the past because we're on the other side and now we're much wiser in understanding. God wants his people to be in the world, right? But not of the world. And so they should be a blessing to all nations around them. So let me read a couple passages here. This is 1 Corinthians 15, New Testament. Bring this into what Paul says about some things about being in the world and not of it. And so we're reading this and and the rest of this passage is talking about separating Uh, the Israelites from the pagan world around them. So 1 Corinthians, two two passages, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verse 13. For there, that's not it. Oh, 33, thank you. Is it up there? You guys could just read it. I'm gonna read it out of the Bible. It says, don't be fooled by those who say such things, for bad company corrupts good character in second corinthians chapter six it says this you know why i read from the word actually the bible and not from that it's because i i can't this is so important in our lives and when it slips away from us to some digital media i think we we lose the the text in in a way we can read it from there that's okay but listen to this this is second corinthians six uh verse 14 So don't team up with those who are unbelievers. How can righteousness be part of wickedness? How can light live with darkness? We know that it can't because, right, light stamps out darkness. What harmony can there be between Christ and the devil? In fact, how can a a believer be a partner with an unbeliever? What union can there be between God's temple and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And we know that, right, from Ephesians, understanding that we are the house of God, we're the temple of the living God. He's He's resided within us. And so we, are, when we are partnering with the enemy, with the devil, we are partnering as the temple of the living God. He says, I will live in them and I'll walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among the unbelievers and separate yourselves from them, says the Lord. Don't touch their filthy things and I will welcome you. And I will be your father and you'll be my sons and daughters. So that seems harsh because we look at this world and go, wait a second, we're supposed to separate ourselves from, the, from, from people who we're supposed to be telling about Jesus? Aren't we supposed to be loving them? Yes, we're supposed to be loving them. But we're supposed to separate ourselves in this, in this idea of purity, in partnership, uh, in a way. So let's, let's continue to look at what's going on here. In verse 1, he, he really says, uh, they have taken up the detestable practices Of the people around them. As romantic culture Americans, we see this story as pretty sad. Uh, They've divorced their wives, and we always put this in the framework of romance and love, we put this thing around it. Maybe, maybe not. It was for a a different reason in this time. These nations, who were these nations? They were the Canaanite nations. And so um, Romans, Paul tells us and helps us understand who these nations was and what was happening in their soul. Romans chapter one, if you wanna read the entire chapter one, do that someday, but today we're just gonna read Romans chapter one, verse 28. It says this, since they thought it foolish to acknowledge foolish to acknowledge God. He abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that never should be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness and sin and greed and hate and envy and murder and quarreling and deception and malicious uh, behavior and gossip. They were backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invented new ways of sinning. They disobeyed their parents as well they refuse to understand break their promise they broke their promises and are heartless and have no mercy they know god's justice re- they know that God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die. Yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them as well. And so we look at the the culture here. These people, we under we start to understand some things that are happening inside. It. These people are are not great people. Um, the Canaanites are are savage people. And so here here's an idea. You guys remember you know the story of Noah, right? <laughs> Noah. God destroyed the people because of their wickedness. And then it stops there. We don't know the wickedness. We don't know exactly what that was and who and how they were behaving. In Genesis, that's what it tells us. But here's, here's kind of some, some ideas about the Canaanites who were Sodom and Gomorrah. Before this, years before this, hundreds of years before this, there was a, a place called Sodom and Gomorrah. Ancient stories give hints about evil in Sodom. Strangers and travelers who came into the city, listen, they would be robbed, stripped, and held captive inside the city of wealth. City of opulence, actually. They would wander the streets, slowly starving to death, to the great amusement of the citizenry of Sodom. One account relates that the visitors to Sodom were offered a bed in accordance with Middle Eastern laws of hospitality. But it was a bed of torture. Short people were stretched, tall people had their legs cut off. If a traveler had no money, he would be given bricks of gold and silver with his name on them. But in taunting, nobody would sell him bread or water, even for all that gold and silver. So the traveler would slowly starve to death. The Sodomites gathered around the corpse and took back the gold and silver. The people in Sodom were not just evil, they were proud of being evil proud of it. It goes on and other archaeological digs give us some um, hints about the Canaanites. So Psalm and Gomorrah was in the Canaanite world. On one high place, archaeologists found several stone pillars and great numbers of jars, contains, containers, remains of newborn babies. When a new house was built, a child would be sacrificed and his body built into the wall alive to bring good luck to the rest of the family. Firstborn children were often sacrificed to Moloch, the great uh, giant hollow bronze image which fire was built inside. Parents would place their children on its red hot hands and the babies would roll down into the fire. The sacrifice was invalid if a parent displayed grief. And so mothers were supposed to dance and sing. Israelites later copied this practice in the valley near Jerusalem called Gehenna. It is, I can't even read you some of the other stuff. It's, it's horrific stuff that the Canaanites were doing in worship. The Canaanites were coming together as a, a huge and, and a sexual worship as well because they believed their gods. If they, they did the right kind of thing in the temples, their gods would be pleased and there would be a fertile land. And, and slaves would come into that realm of that, trying to keep it PG-13. This is not PG-13. It's rated R and more slaves and children and boys and girls would be pushed into that realm and abused to death to please the gods of the, the land. I mean, these were horrific people. And our minds, I don't even think our minds can comprehend that kind of stuff. When we look at a newborn baby, there's nothing we want more than to cuddle and hold and cherish and care, right? These were horrific cultures. But God God had compassion, even on them. One of the most fascinating verses I came across a while back is in Genesis 15, Genesis 15, 16. Abraham is being talked to by God. And uh, Abraham is in the, the land of the Canaanites and he's supposed to take the land of the Canaanites, right? But God had this to say, after four generations, your descendants will return here to this land. And so God kind of, Promises Abraham that he's going to be gone for 400 years, his genera- his people in Egypt, but he says after 400 after four generations, your descendants will return here to this land. Listen, for the sins of the Amorites, the Canaanites, the people in this valley, do not yet warrant their destruction. So God, in His grace and His mercy, gave the Amorites 400 years to change their way, and then the the people of Israel came to the door. Of Jericho, and they were sent back out into the desert 40 more years. God gave the people of Canaan 40 more years. And we get to understand that in Jericho, this city, people are terrified of the God of Israel, yet they refuse to turn, just like Romans said. They know God. They know the destruction that comes because of rebelling against God, yet they refuse to turn except for one person, Rahab. And so God throughout is this merciful God who wants to bring people back, who repents and, and relents of, of uh, destruction over and over and over. And the God we see in the Bible is a merciful God. 400 years of trying and hoping that these, these people stop their wicked way. And so the Israelites would come into the, the country and they would try to wipe out everybody or send them away. And so the, the order was get rid of them out of the land or kill them all. God, though, is a God of patience. And this is a horrific stench that was coming up to his nostrils. In fact, there's a passage that says the people of Canaan, that the land was so um, overwhelmed by the blood that the land was trying to vomit them out. The land itself was trying to get rid of the people of Canaan. Interesting. So history tells the story of a creator who creates us, humans who rebel over and over and over, yet there is a redemption story inside of this that leaves us with amazing hope. At the end of this, we'll see more of that. So at the beginning of this passage, we see this report that came up uh, in in chapter 9, this report that came up that the people came to to Ezra saying, hey, men of Israel have married women. They've taken on the, the practices, the detestable practices of the Canaanites. And it wasn't just about marrying them. It was taking on the detestable practices of the Canaanites. Can I just tell you, do you remember a guy named Solomon? Wisest man on earth, discerning, understood things. And he started to marry the people of the land. Instead of keeping the Israelites, there was supposed to be this this community of God's people living inside, surrounded by, but pure and blessing the nations. But Solomon looked out and was going, I, I'm just going to take some wives. He started taking 700, 1,000 actually. He started taking. And what it did, it kind of changed his heart. And so this wife was a follower of Moloch. And so Solomon went out and set up a, a shrine to Moloch. And the Israelites started to burn their babies. Solomon went out and, and this was a, a woman from the this tribe that, that f, um, worshiped as an Asherah pole. And Solomon set up, those poles around for worship for his people in his land, in the, the land. of And so so God kind of did something. He split the land. He started punishing the people. He started trying to push them back to God, to a purity. And so we, we come from all that. We, we get into exile because of this sin and and back some good kings, some bad kings, some awful kings, some other kings like Josiah who tore down all this stuff and other kings who set up this stuff again and again. And here's Ezra coming in, and he gets this report that the people have once again married the pagan world and started to follow the detestable actions of those worlds. So in chapter 9, verse 3, we see a reaction from Ezra. In fact, this reaction was of shock. In verse 3, when I heard this, I tore my cloak and my shirt. I pulled my hair out of my head. I don't know if any of you had tried that. It hurts. And he pulled it out of his beard, and he sat down utterly shocked. Then all who trembled at the words of God of Israel came and sat with me because of this outrageous, this outrage committed by the returned exiles. And I sat there utterly appalled until the time of the evening sacrifice. Ezra heard the report and, and it shocked him. It was like, wait a second, what? I thought I thought we had this all together. What's going on here? Why? Why? And I think he, he was a little bit naive that everybody was following the rules and, and we're In fact, just days before, just days before, they sacrificed a sin offering. All the people, all the Levites, all the priests came together and sacrificed a sin offering, and now they were following right back into sin. In fact, they sacrificed that sin offering while they were sinning. Don't we do that often? We come before God and plead, and please forgive me for this and that, and I'm thinking about what I'm about to do. We come to God in this space and he was shocked and he couldn't believe this. I have been shocked by believers. I've been shocked this past couple of years by religious leaders who have done atrocious things as they lead and they abuse. It shocks me. I don't know why it shocks me. They're humans, depraved. And uh, it shocks and I want, to get, I want to punch them in the face. Later on in Jeremiah, that's exactly what he does. here he is, shocked. he was appalled and appa- um, being appalled was the right response. you know we're, when rebellion stops affecting us, we're beginning to be accustomed to the things that the enemy of the enemy, the ways of the enemy. We're, we need to pray that that things still shock us that when when the enemy moves and somebody of, of godly character does something of sin, it should shock us. so in chapter nine verse five we see we see this this uh, re- reaction, and now we see Ezra respond at the time of the sacrifice. I stood up from where I had been sitting. And I sat in mourning now with my clothes torn. I fell to my knees and I lifted my hands to the Lord my God. And I prayed, oh my God, I am utterly ashamed. I blush to even come before you and lift my face to you. For our sins have piled higher than our heads. And our guilt has reached to the heavens. And from the days of our ancestors until now, we have been steeped in sin. And he goes on to this prayer of shame and guilt and re- re- reminding himself and the people who were gathered around him, look at our shame. He was blushing to even come before God, utterly ashamed. We have this understanding that shame is a bad thing and guilt is a bad thing and we should not be shameful about anything. And I think that perhaps shame can be a good thing in our lives as well as a bad thing. and We need to decipher what that is. The enemy uses shame and guilt to drive us away from God. The spirit uses shame and guilt to draw us close to God. And we need to discern that as people of God about what God is doing in our lives, remembering that he's a merciful God. And when we feel shame, he's drawing us close to him so that healing can happen and we can understand who we are. You know, guilt is an objective reality of being liable to punishment because of an agreed upon law that we broke. That's guilt. Shame is a subjective feeling. Guilt is an objective reality. Shame is an, a subjective feeling of worthlessness because we don't meet some kind of standard of righteousness. So both actually can be life-giving and both can be crippling. But if we know who we are in Christ, both can be life-giving. So think about the shame thing. It's something that C.S. Lewis talked a lot about is shame. Is like, where did this come from? Shame is not an evolutionary standard. It can't be. There's nothing that came about from the time that we were uh, swimming as tadpoles to now that we created the shame thing. It, it, it's something spiritual. It's something spiritual that every society on earth has a, has a place of shame that I should be better than I am. I shouldn't do that to that person. I shouldn't take that person's wife. I shouldn't, I shouldn't take that person's life. I shouldn't steal from that person. There's a, and when I do it, I feel bad about it. There's something good about feeling bad about doing something wrong. Shame is based in the spiritual morality, a higher calling instituted by someone other than man. Shame is a painful emotion that, that is caused by a consciousness of guilt, right? It's the shameful emotion caused by the consciousness of guilt, failure, or impropriety that has a halted, it stops us. It has this halting effect on us. Shame should stop us. So we can take shame too far. And if we don't understand who we are, shame becomes something that cripples us. Shame can be very good for us to steer us in the right direction. It protects us even. But if we're not secure in who we are in Christ, it will cripple us and destroy us the enemy will then use shame to encourage us to hide or fight the shame that we feel can be that is something god's given to us to feel like i need to stop this i need to pause i need to quit doing this this is something from god and it can turn us back into life and life giving and when we feel a shame that's crippling us you can be confident that that shame is from the enemy that is him trying to destroy you, trying to steal and kill and destroy you. I've heard this often from people. I don't feel any shame. I'm my own man and I can do whatever I want. It's just a representative of a calloused heart and callousness destroys us. I've got to keep going because time is ticking on. It doesn't seem to stop for me when I'm here. So chapter 10, we'll jump over to chapter 10 and verse one, it says this. This This is repentance. We had this, this response and now there's a repentance the response was was pleading for god oh there's another part of this response that i just got to mention a little bit part of the response was ezra saying we have sinned and he took this as a pastor as a spiritual leader of the people he he kneels before god and he says that we have sinned we have done this and he takes this posture of going i want to i want to pull all of us in it's not him going um, hey God, I've sinned. Punish me. He's going. We have sinned as a community, and we know better as a community. And so, I want to just say, in in light of the last two years, there's actually been a lot of this conversation in the last two years. That that there's a, a collective um, response. There should be a collective response to abuses of the past, which I really believe there is. The problem with it is, is that it's hard for us to know who we're responsible for, because of of the wide breadth of the past. He can say this because this is the Jewish nation and the Jewish nation was supposed to be pure and it was, they knew the law, all right? So when I have Christ followers who are going against the law of God, going against loving others and loving God as themselves, I can kind of understand that I need to take responsibility and come into this thing and praying before God. Like we need to take responsibility for this. Church, we need to take responsibility for this and figure out what happened and why this has happened. Let's repent before God. It's a little harder to do that with, with cultures and peoples that I don't even know and don't, they don't know the rules to. But there is a, a truth in here about repentance and coming before God as a spiritual leader. We have sinned before you, God. Help us to move forward in this. And what it does is keep me from being on the sideline and pointing fingers, ah, you've sinned. Not me, but you said. And I admit that this is a, it's a sticky spot because we don't know exactly where to fit in, how we fit in to this. But I'm okay with wrestling with that as well. So verse one of chapter 10, while Ezra prayed and made his confession, and weeping and lying face down on the ground in front of the temple of God. A very large crowd of people from Israel, men, women, and children, gathered and wept bitterly with him. Ezra was a leader, and the people joined in with Ezra in repenting. And they came before God and they repented and they wept bitterly. Repentance is a breaking of the heart when convicted of sin. When, when when shame appears and it convicts us of sin, repentance is a breaking of our heart, a breaking of our soul. And when we realize our guilt for breaking the law, or shame comes forward, which leads a wise man to repentance, but it leads a foolish man to pride and excuses and blame and more and more sin. If I'm honest, in my past life, in my young man life, I would come to the place of, uh, of uh, doing um, uh, things that I'm not proud of, right? And I would figure out how to have a, an excuse for that. A shame would hit me, but then I'd excuse it away. Well, everybody does this. This is just the way it is. I can't really help it. When shame hits an unwise man and an ungodly man, it makes us excuse things. <laughs> it makes us find ways to excuse things. And so when harm and, and bad things happen, instead of our first response go, oh my gosh, somebody died. Somebody got hurt. Somebody, somebody got abused. We go, yeah, but I wonder why. <laughs> I wonder what's going on here. Let's excuse it away and then maybe come around with some compassion. Maybe we should start with compassion because it's broken our heart and then come around with understanding why. So anyway, they all repented. It's a breaking of their heart. They came before God. And if your heart's not breaking and you call it repentance, it's not repentance. It's something selfish. What happens when you're caught? What do you do do in your mind when you're caught? (laughs) It tells you a lot about your understanding of repentance and maybe the understanding of a merciful God. Verse two through five, we have a repentance and now we have a recourse, a change of direction, change of ways. Verse two, when Shechaniah the son of Jehiah and the descendant of Elam said to Ezra, we have been unfaithful, we have been unfaithful to our God for we have married these pagan women of the land. But in spite of this, there is hope for Israel, right, Ezra? We believe in a merciful God, there's hope for Israel. Let us now, all of us, Make a covenant with our God to divorce our pagan wives and to send them away with their children. We will follow the advice given by you, Ezra, and by the others who respect the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law of Moses. They, they ask Ezra to get up and do his duty to tell them what to do. Well, a recourse is a dramatic, it, something has to change. They have to change their ways. Dramatic change occurs when a repentance is real. When our heart is truly broken, a dramatic change happens. And come to find out, out of the 60,000 people or more, probably 75, 100,000 people who were living in Jerusalem, there was only 100 people who did this, all right? And so these 100 people were, uh, were interviewed. They discovered what happened. They discovered who they were. And these 100 people willfully came before God and divorced their wives and sent their children away. Even understanding who the pagan world is, I find that really harsh. Do you? Anybody? <laughs> I find that really harsh. Heartbreaking, even. But God was trying to do something more, and he was trying to be gracious and merciful. What the children of Israel would do over and over and over, they would accept the practices of the pagan religions, and literally the, the Valley of Gehenna set up a statue to Moloch and burn their own children to death, worshiping pagan gods. And God was saying, I don't want you to be polluted. I don't want you to be torn into the the perfection and the righteousness that we have as a people. I don't want you to be polluted because when you're polluted, you can't bless. It's like pure water really blesses us and gives us some really beautiful quenching of our thirst and, and life. Impure water makes us sick. You drink some impure water in the mountains, you have some bad stuff going on, right? And so impurity is, this is the picture here, is impurity makes us sick and the people of God sick. So how does this point to the Messiah? Coming through this, the messianic message is there, and we're going to just wrap this up by pointing to the Messiah. For humans to be in the presence of a holy God, we must be pure as well. We must be righteous to be in the presence of a holy God. And we learn through the Old Testament that that humanity has a really hard time remaining righteous. In fact, they never do it. If anything, we learn from the Old Testament is they never do it. They, they, they don't even do it for a, a day, a week. A, a, and even here, we, we realize, you know, there's, there's things that happen. And, and just a few days later, Nehemiah is going to show up and he's going to go, wait a second, didn't Ezra deal with this already? He starts beating them up. But we're just really bad at it. So, so there has to be something more. There has to be a way. There has to be a way for us to be righteous, Right? Jesus made the way, the Messiah. The human struggle is wrought with rebellion and pain, and the only remedy is Jesus himself. Our guilt, our shame, put to death. He didn't die for us as much as he died instead of us. He lived the life we should have lived, and he died the death we should have died. For purity's sake, for righteousness' sake, for the sake of being able to come into the presence of a righteous god a righteous god cannot be in the presence of impurity and so for the people of god to be in the presence of god it required sacrifices and sin sacrifices and all this stuff and and it required a weekly thing a daily thing because the people kept but jesus solved it once and for all in john 1st john chapter 1 verse 7 it says the blood of jesus and his son purifies us from all sin. A purified people being a blessing to all living in the world, but not of the world. That's you, the people of God. A purified people because of Jesus, nothing about what we can do, (laughs) nothing. So I'll end with that because really that is our spot. We see a creation story with rebellion happening with God looking for a way to redeem his people so we can live in hope. And that hope, that's where it's at. The hope is where it's at. We, we get to live in this hope and freedom, and we don't have to be guilty anymore because Jesus took the guilt, right? Isn't that beautiful? We don't have to live in guilt and shame. We can allow it to push us, halt us, stop us, but we don't need to live in it because Jesus took that up on his own shoulders and put it to death and rose again on the third day. Easter's coming, and it's going to be a beautiful celebration where we're going to celebrate the the resurrection of the King so we would have an amazing hope for eternal life. Let's pray.